Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sunday morning. We thank you for the promise of a service together with your people, your word, and your spirit. We thank you for the beautiful day that you've given us outside. We thank you for the beautiful world that you created and created in us the opportunity, the the ability to see its beauty. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the song we've just sung as revealed truth from Scripture that you would see fit to change back into your likeness, creatures of the dirt that rebelled against you. Lord, we ask for something special this morning. We ask that you give us what it takes to be able to look in on a passage of Scripture depicting your death and look at it afresh. A story we likely all know so well. Couldn't be more familiar with any other passage of Scripture, but today we we need to hear from you. And Lord, I ask that you do it for your glory. You've done it so many times before, over the ages and generations, even in this very room. Lord, do it again today. We thank you for your love, your grace. Lord, for your wonder. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, it's good to see each of you folks. And... uh, It's always a privilege and a pleasure to welcome you to church, Uh, be that if you're here in the room or attending over live stream, we again thank you for your faithfulness in doing so, and um, it is a beautiful day outside, and uh, 13 days till spring, if you're counting, maybe you're not, I am, and uh, today makes it feel even more like spring. But uh, today we're going to pick up where we left off last time, and we're charting our way through the book of John, and we're approaching Easter quickly, just a few weeks away. And again, if you missed the announcement last week, there there will be information forthcoming uh, by way of email. But we plan to have our Easter service outdoors. That will be behind our Family Life Center uh, in that big field Uh, We're hoping, we're praying that it'll dry out, that we'll have sunshine, um, a warm morning, uh, but most of all, we'd be together. Uh, We've chosen that because we, we, that's the biggest space we have, and uh, we're looking forward to it. We've got a backup plan uh, if necessary, but we hope you'll join us there for that. I'd like to direct your attention to the 19th chapter of John's Gospel. We are in... Verse 17 this morning, actually the last portion of verse 16, uh, many of your Bibles likely split the paragraph right in the middle of a verse, Uh, but we'll pick up with that last part of verse 16 and read through verse 27. This is our portion for today. Uh, We'll read and then we'll ask for the Lord's help. But the scriptures say, so they took Jesus... And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, 
which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. We'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray. Father in heaven, as said already, we'll have to have your help to see this and to see it new. Lord, I am not sufficient for this. We are not sufficient to see all that is here. It'll be by your Holy Spirit's revelation of your inspired word that we have any hope to see what we were meant to see. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, open our heart, open our head. Take full jurisdiction over these things. And for your glory, we expect much because you're a great God and the master teacher. So, Lord, we ask all this in the name of the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let's look here at John's account. We'll take this in pieces. Uh, as far as the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark's account and John's account, at least at this stage, are most similar than the other two. But even so, John will leave out a few details. But in this passage that we just read, there are several features that the other authors do not mention at all. Uh, specifically, the controversy over what was written on the inscription that we just read. Also, several prophetic fulfillments, one of which we read. There are more to come. And then the care of Jesus for his mother is not mentioned by the other three. But John, that makes sense, being that Mary was entrusted to his care. This is his eyewitness account. But we'll organize our, our time this morning in at least four sections. Uh, these are easy enough to see. 
Uh, first is the, the first two verses, 17 and 18, which gives us in, uh, information as far as the setting. So we'll call that the setting. Then there's this inscription that's discussed. It's written and then complained about. That's verses 19 through 22. And then in 23 through 24, those two verses describe the soldiers dividing the spoil. So the setting, the inscription, dividing the spoil, and then final arrangements. Verse 25, 6, and 7. So let's look back at that first, well, actually the last part of 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his cross, places called the place of a skull, Aramaic, that's Golgotha. There they crucified him, two others, one on either side, Jesus in the middle. Now the Greek words simply say that they took Jesus. It's not complicated Greek, you could... In fact, uh, John's Gospel is the one they use in your first Greek class because it's as easy to read as anywhere else in the New Testament. That has to refer to the soldiers because later on it's the soldiers who are doing the work of crucifixion. And it's at this point most likely that they would have administered that awful scourging that we discussed last week. Verse 17 says that he went out, if you look at it there, He went out bearing his own cross. I like the way John frames that image. Look at it. Between the end of 16 and the beginning of 17. They took Jesus. He went out bearing his own cross. It's as if at every turn John wants to make sure he's giving Jesus the full credit of absolute total control of everything that is taking place. So, yes, they took custody, they're going to execute this man, but he went out carrying his own cross. That's the way it was done, but let's not miss the way that John tells the story. Typically, it was the cross member that the condemned would carry, the horizontal bar as it was, and they would carry this on their shoulders Uh, through the most public route to wherever the execution would take place so that the maximum amount of people would see what was taking place. And the upright would be fixed in the ground already, waiting for them when they would arrive. And we know this largely from extra-biblical history. And there's no reason to believe that this crucifixion was unlike so many of the others. In the sense as how the Romans would have went about doing these things. Uh, Golgotha is mentioned here, which this is a little technical because Golgotha is an English transliteration of a Greek word, which is a transliteration of an Aramaic word. So you've got to know three languages in order to make sense of that. The more common word used is Calvary which is a Latin word. They all mean the same thing. They all mean skull. It was probably named for its appearance, though we can't say for sure. The site itself is largely disputed because it's just not clear. Now, many of you who've been to the Holy Land are probably familiar with Gordon's Calvary. The best of the scholars rule that location out. Uh, with the things that we've dug from the ground and other things gathered 
over the generations, other places seem to be more likely than that one, which is so famous, especially on tours. I have to admit, standing at the railing looking at a parking lot full of tour buses was not what I had in mind. (laughs) When I heard about this, growing up in sermons such as these. But, as far as the most likely of the options that remain, that would be near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which many of you have been there, have visited that location as well, because it's just outside the northern wall and not far from the road. It fits the description. And it was there, wherever there was, in a public place where all could see the soldiers crucified our Lord. The ancient world, this was the most terrible of punishments purposefully meant to shame and to horrify. Now, the inscription here, and I'm going to move through these details quickly. You may have heard me say on a Wednesday evening or perhaps here that it's always been my practice because I believe it's my heart that I think the gruesome details of the crucifixion can be overdone. I think there are reasons why John would go through so quickly and leave so much of the details to imagination. Because anyone who he would have written to that read this when it was first distributed knew all too well what this was like. But the purpose that gives me pause is that I've sat through messages listening to the horrific description of what happened to Jesus' body only to ignore what happened to his soul as his father forsook him. That we don't have the ability to understand as readily. But that seems to be the absolute basis for our birthright as described. To him gave he the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. It wasn't only his physical death, but it was his payment for our sins. So, in other words, we'll look at these things, but to draw them out, squeezing, as it were, every drop of Horrific drama will save for another time. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Read Jesus of Nazareth. Many read this. Three languages. And then the chief priests took issue with it. They said, change it. Make it say, he said he was, rather than act as if he was. Now, it was custom that the crime for which crucifixion had been sentenced... The crime would be written on a placard of sorts and hung around the neck of the criminal on his way to the cross. And at the cross, it would be affixed to the cross itself. As if to explain to anyone who wanted to know, well, what did they do to deserve this? It was there in print. And it was not uncommon to do this in three different languages. And some have gone as far as to say we've got issue with the different Gospel writers, because it seems the wording is different on the sign each time. That's likely because 
everyone knows with different languages, the words are in different orders, aren't they? That's what's so tough about taking Spanish sometimes because some words come before the other ones. It's a dead giveaway to someone when you're speaking a language that's not your own by the way you order the words. They know you're still a student. But that's the way this was here. Three languages. If you've been to Israel and you've been in a car, you know their signs have three languages. Now they've switched one out for English, but there's Arabic, there's Hebrew, and there's English. So that everyone knows what it says and where they're going. So in this case, the inscription read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Aramaic, rather than Arabic, was the common language of Judea. Latin was the official language of the Roman army. Greek was the trade language of the empire, much as English would be in that vicinity today. Some have said that Pilate declined to change the words on the sign because he refused to change the truth into a lie. I don't buy that. I don't give him that much credit. He was standing in front of Jesus talking about truth and walked out. That was actually his last word for that moment. He came back in to ask him who he was after the Jews told him that he claimed to be the Son of God. But I don't think he's very interested in figuring things out. I think he's most interested in saving his own power. He's in a precarious situation. Those Jews put him on the horns of a dilemma, uh, to use a Hebrew term. And in this case, I don't think that was it at all. I think he would not change it because the purpose for him writing it that way was to humiliate the people who had just humiliated him. And for him to change it would be for him to change course again at their call. There's no way he's going to do that. Regardless, Pilate, like Caiaphas, and these are the two most actively responsible for Jesus' death, This is another case of John's irony here. They've not only unwittingly furthered God's redemptive purpose by him being involved in the whole thing and responsible personally for doing so, both of them here have served as prophets of this king they have chosen to execute. With Caiaphas, he's the one saying, y'all are all a bunch of idiots. Don't you know that it's better that one man die for the whole country then us all lose our life and our property. It's Pilate here who lets the whole world and everyone passing by know exactly who this man is. Even so, in doing, he's trying his best to insult them. But he's preaching truth. So then in verse 23, we have dividing the spoils. And uh, verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. Tunic was seamless. They didn't tear it, but they cast lots. And that was to fulfill Scripture. So again, by custom... Not only was it a custom that they made a placard and wrote down the charges, they also, at the point of crucifixion, the clothes of these criminals were 
the prerogative of the executioners. It's kind of the way to, I guess, sweeten the deal. Um, maybe they got comp time for this, maybe not. But at least they got to sell off the man's last possessions. And it's kind of hard in the Greek, not because it's hard to understand, but just because we're given but so many words. It's kind of difficult to understand whether or not that the four parts that were given to each soldier were four separate articles of clothing, like his head covering, his outer robe, his belt and his sandals. It's one way to look at it, minus the tunic that was one piece. Or it could be that his outer robe was divided along its seams into four pieces of fabric and one was given to each. But John is quite descriptive here when he describes this uh, tunic. And most of us, I I, I doubt you have anything in your closet you call a tunic. We don't use that word anymore. But this was the garment that was worn closest to the skin, though we shouldn't confuse it with our version of undergarments it wasn't an undergarment but it was the one that was made most comfortable to wear close to the skin in this case it was woven not unlike some of the clothing for the priests that were made with one singular thread that wasn't broken from top to bottom Um, this was something that would have been of course made by hand and a lot of care taken to do so and because it would have made it worthless to cut it up, they decided to cast lots for it. Now, again, some of these commentators want to say, well, they knew all about this. Some of these people had tipped them off. There's a prophecy in uh, Psalm 22, so that's why they did this. Again, that's such a, a stretch. And we, we, we see that this is not unprecedented at all. What do these men know about Psalm 22. What do these Hebrews know about Psalm 22? A lot. And what's so fascinating about Psalm 22, in addition to the fact that it clearly says they cast lots for my garments, it uncannily describes what takes place during crucifixion. Only problem is it was written a thousand years earlier by King David. Long before Rome was ever in power and long before they ever chose crucifixion as their capital punishment and perfected it from the Phoenicians they borrowed it from. So if you say, well, they cast a lot because it still doesn't diminish the miraculous prophecy of Psalm 22 in the slightest. Now John gives the detail here about not splitting that up or, or dismembering the, the tunic. The other three do not. And from time to time I like to uh, indulge some speculation. I'll go for some controlled speculation, but wild speculation distracts from interpretation. It's just bad form. But John gives us things that John sees that the others don't because John is a little closer to the picture. And we do have precedent, not necessarily in the scripture, but in the custom of the Hebrews that when a young man left home, 
his mom would make him a garment. We got stories like that in the Old Testament, don't we? And sometimes they'd take extra careful care. If his mother's standing by watching it be auctioned off, I think that'd be tough to handle, wouldn't you? Who's standing by her as it's done? John. Is that the way it happened? I have no idea. But perhaps the reason why John mentions this, while the others did not, is because perhaps it has added significance to him or his mother. Again, Psalm 22 is part of the fulfillment of Scripture. And he makes sure that this is quite clear. But as Jesus, at this point, is stripped of his last earthly possessions, and in this case, contrary to all artist renderings, they took all the clothes. That was part of crucifixion. He remains at this point, as stripped as he is, under his father's sovereign care, even down to his tunic not being torn, such that it would be gambled over in fulfillment of Scripture written by King David under the inspiration of God. So let's go to the final arrangements. Again, uh, this kind of split between a verse. The last part of the verse says, So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And then in verse 26, we see the exchange between Jesus, John, over Mary, his mother. But I think it'd be, it'd be sad to miss, again, John drawing, almost uh, purposefully drawing a contrast to trigger uh, imagination in our mind. Look at it. The soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were Mary and his mother. Two groups of people. A hateful group of people, a loving group of people. One who knew nothing of Jesus, one who knew everything of Jesus that someone could know at this point in his revelation. So standing off as if to force the imagination to mark the difference, John puts these two groups in the same sentence. Now how many women are listed here? That's another bone of contention. And again, because the Greek just makes it difficult. You've got options here. It could be two women, three women, or four women. And there's one clue that will help you take four women as the most logical. And that is because not too many parents name more than one of their daughters Mary. You ever known of anyone who named two of their daughters the same name? Well, it would have to be that way if we were to take this as three or two. But look at it. You've got Jesus, where his mother and mother's sister were. Mary, the wife of Clopas, that seems to be one person. And Mary Magdalene. Actually, you've got three Marys here. But it looks as if two would be in the same family. And we talked about that a few weeks back, how John could actually be related to the high priestly family. And that would also make him related to... Jesus himself. So the Greek behind dear woman, and we're about to wrap up the details here. 
where he says to his mother, Behold, woman, behold your son. It's the same word that we had in chapter 2, the wedding feast in Cana. And they're both difficult to understand. As far as the Greek, the word is gune. And uh, we just don't refer to women as woman these days. We have other terms that we use. The best case in some translations put the word dear in front of it, dear woman. There's no way to to think at all that Jesus would be any less than as courteous, as careful and respectful of his mother than he could be. It just sounds strange when we read it this way. But it is a term of endearment. And... Uh, if you track, trace, even through John's record, Jesus' dealings with his mother, even there at the wedding feast, when he says, basically, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Almost as if to remind his mother, there's a purpose for me being here on earth, and uh, bailing out a, a mistake in a wedding planner's journal is not what I'm here for. But even so, he, he took care of it. Then there's times where, hey, your mother and your brothers are out here. And Jesus says, uh, my mother and my brothers are, are different than that. You almost think, well, they get shortchanged. And then there's the time where he's saying, you know, if you haven't forsaken father and mother, you're not fit for the kingdom. So it looks as if there's this distanced relationship by virtue of who he is and what he's here to do, but that in no way shows us any slight or disrespect. And if there was left any there, this should take care of it, that while this man hangs dying on a Roman cross, with one group making fun and another group crying, he still has enough about him to take, make sure he takes care of his mother's final arrangements that is on his heart we're looking at this the only thing that we see anyone sees anyone there that day how do you ignore the spectacle of this cross we're all looking at this cross and Jesus is looking at his mother so I think this ties up the whole relationship with a beautiful bow What do we make of this? Most seminary professors in preaching class say that you've, you've got a part in the message where you set up the scaffold and then you take down the scaffold and then you translate or transfer to application. That application is perhaps the most important part of the message. And I don't know where I struggled with that or began to. And I don't really remember where I, some places I just abandoned that altogether. I don't subscribe to the fact that every sermon requires application. I think that so many of these, if the text is actually explained, the implication should be larger than the broad side of a barn. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear. This is about as difficult of a passage to fit into the formula of go thou and do likewise that there ever was. 
Wouldn't you say? And I've struggled with this. Um, you know, because there's things we can see in here, and according to the same mechanics of good uh, expository preaching at times, you know, there's, there's not that there's nothing here that could be used. Uh, if you had to draw an outline, or if you were in the class of a guy who just had to have this to give you an A, and you're that type of person that'll go for the A rather than you know, doing what you think is right. This... I'm digging a hole for myself here, but <laughs> Mary and John here are quite exemplary. Standing with Jesus while others had run. And we could look to them knowing that the world is ready to treat us like they treated Jesus on first notice that we happen to be followers of Jesus. There's something to learn there. You could ask yourself if you're with the group that is doing the crucifying, or if you're with the group that's watching the crucified. You could ask yourself if you are like those who would kill or lie to protect yourself, or would likely be in danger of harm or death in saving the life of others or ministering to them. We could say that this is to have us understand that we're to cling to Jesus like we cling to life itself and hate the sin brought down on His shoulders by the wrath of His Father. All that is good. But I don't really know how to put that into points of application. Best way I know to describe it, I thought of this last night. My wife writes me notes from time to time. She's done that since before we were married. And some of them are short. Some of them are more lengthy. Some of them are just because, which means they have no technical reason. Some of them are for a reason, when I need one. <laughs> Y'all are laughing about this. It's not the way I meant to say that. When I need encouragement, or if I'm looking a little spread too thin, those things are priceless to me. I keep them in different places. They're shoved in different books. My kids will find them all one day when I'm gone. Some of them may be more interesting than others when you do. But I'll tell you one thing I've never done. I've never tried to find a nice setting like an empty beach, take one of those letters, read it from top to bottom, and then go, now how should I apply this to my life? It doesn't work that way. If that's what I have to do with it, I'm reading it wrong. What I'm reading is the color on the painting of something wonderful that is true and exists as sure as the air I'm breathing right now. We're reading about the death of the Son of God, the, the Word made flesh for the purpose of atoning for our sins. And the only way I know to, to try to deconstruct that is just to try to compare it to anything we might have reference for. And at a certain point, all the reference points are left so far behind that there's really no way to relate to it. I mean, how would you respond to someone who saved your life. Let's, let's think about here and now. And you may know someone who did something like that. History is full of such situations. 
They make good stories because we're drawn to that type of thing. We have respect and honor for someone. Most times, if it's a life or death situation, getting involved in that puts the person themselves in some risk. Or they, they, they throw their own safety uh, to the wind in order to do so. There are stories we know of where someone actually lost their life in order to save the life of another person. And we always think this is great. But that's not this. Because that situation, as great as it is, and how we would be at a loss to ever thank someone for saving our life, or saving the life of one of our children, or looking into the eyes of a doctor, or shaking the hand of this man who opened my father's chest and rerouted six of his arterial vessels, such that he's alive today and didn't die as a result of heart disease. How do you thank that guy? I don't know. It's tough. But that's not this. Because life has limits. This man that I refer to, doctor, gave my father a lot more time. But my father won't beat time eternally because of what this guy did. Same as Jesus healing the man's son. There's something more important than healing his son. Because even the man and his son are going to die again one day. Jesus makes sure he knows this is more than just a miracle I'm going to do for you. So even that illustration, as good as it is, would fall short. Think of another one. We've got way less reference points in history. Something like this. How many of you know of someone who took someone else's punishment? Not many, because most court systems don't allow for that type of thing. Now, if you want to just use a very basic illustration, I think every parent who's ever had children for a season absorbs quite a bit of their child's mistakes, their problems. <laughs> if it's uh, you know Cheerios on the floor to start with, wait till you know it's uh, deductibles are just out of pocket when they back their car into some strangers in the parking lot. I never did such a thing. I just wrecked the whole thing. (laughs) Parents have to absorb that sort of thing. But I've, I've never known of a story in this land where the judge looks across the bench and says, Sir or ma'am, you seem to be awful upset about this that your son or daughter has done. I'll give you the option of just taking their sentencing for them if that's what you'd like. Doesn't work, does it? Though I've known parents who spent their life savings on rehab for a child or counseling or bail money. They'd do anything they possibly could, but there's a limit. There are lines there. You can only go so far as to doing that for someone, right? What about the opposite of that? That's in the negative. What about the positive? What about virtue? Have you ever heard a story where a man left all his character and virtue to someone upon his death? Last will and testament. I bequeath to my associate all the rights and privileges that come along with receiving this major award. You'd say, no way. It doesn't work can't do that. He doesn't deserve it. 
right? You may be able to have someone's, you know, uh, Emmy or Oscar or Grammy on your shelf. If you didn't write that song or, you know, balance that equation or whatever they give prizes, Nobel Prize. It doesn't work that way, does it? You might even spend your life under the tutelage of someone for the purpose of learning all the things that took them a lifetime to learn as far as character, kindness, goodness. But it can't just be handed over to be yours as if you earned it. So in all three of those, it's not like this, is it? That's the best I know to try to explain what's taking place on Calvary. What's being purchased. The transaction by which you, a creature of the dirt, who through Adam and Eve rebelled against the God of the universe, who before it happened promised you will surely die. And then they didn't die. That day they were clothed in grace. Their nakedness was covered. They were given a lifetime to choose God as their God. Because one day in the future, there would come a time where that could be paid for in order to forgive them. Not just save their life here and now. Save their life for eternity. Not just to expunge their sin record off the books for a misdemeanor, or capital crime, but for cosmic treason against the eternal God. And then to have all the goodness that Jesus had by virtue of his own deity handed to you as if it were yours, such that when the God of the universe looks at you, he doesn't see your sin but he sees the sinless sacrifice of his son on your behalf. There is no precedent for this. There's nothing in history like this. There's no religion that offers a story like this. I don't know any way else to say it, but there's nothing like this, and it was for you. Hallelujah. This isn't a go thou and do likewise. This is a behold your God message. And we're not even done. We, we, we stopped before he breathed his last. Gave up his own ghost as it says. Before he was laying in a tomb. Only in heaven will we find out what happened over the course of those three days. And then to be risen because the grave can't hold him. Like Peter would say the Pangs of death couldn't hold him back. He can't stay dead. He doesn't deserve death. He's never sinned. But glory to God, because we belong to him, death has no claim on us either. All made possible by the fact that he went out and bore his own cross. So none of us would have to. Put it in John's terms. They took him, but he went out on purpose, carried his cross, which should have been ours, in order to say it is finished. 
in order to satisfy his father's wrath. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what else should we say? And it feels pitiful to even attempt to use words in a way where words don't work anymore. We've all had feelings where the words just were superfluous. Lord, put us in the situation that we saw Job, the situation where we saw Jonah, the situation where I think we are looking on John's tendency, but he's giving us what we need in order to see what took place. Lord, at this point, we ask that we see you as God so that we can be quiet. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.